The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Happy Friday, everyone. Welcome to Sportbox. Here are your headlines today. U.S. equities snap a four-day winning streak, dragging Asia lower as stronger-than-expected U.S. inflation data reignites concerns rates will remain higher for longer. Debt distress makes headlines at the annual IMF World Bank meetings in Marrakesh. Speaking on a CNBC panel, World Bank President A.J. Banga says it's impossible to know where borrowing costs will go next. Anybody who knows how to predict interest rates should be in a different business. Normally, it's called soothsaying or, you know, future telling. Chinese consumer inflation flatlines in September, while factory prices fall for the 12th month in a row. Sperrin bets the central bank will need to ramp up support measures. Israel warns all civilians to leave Gaza City and head south ahead of what it describes as significant military operations in the coming days. And back to the drawing board, Steve Scalise ends his bid to become U.S. House Speaker, leaving the chamber leaderless as the standoff stretches into its second week. Our conference still has to come together and is not there. Uh, There are still some people that have their own agendas. And I was very clear, we have to have everybody put their agendas on the side and focus on what this country needs. All important CPI numbers yesterday. We set this up uh, with the market very much focusing on those pricing pressures and whether they were starting to abate. And it was somewhat of a mixed picture. That headline, though, rate it was uh, higher than forecast. The CPI at 3.7%. On a monthly basis, though, inflation did decelerate from 06 to 0.4%. Uh, that lower energy price obviously kicking in. But still, uh, the market uh, concerned about some of the strength we, sh- we saw in the shelter components, the core inflation numbers still steady up 0.3 of a percent month on month. So what we had, a reaction on markets, and it was just this repricing of risk. And don't forget the commentary, the stream of commentary from those Fed speakers in recent days has been, look, the higher rates we're seeing on bond markets might be doing some of the job for the Fed in bringing tighter financial conditions. And the interpretation for the market has been that, look, we're done when it comes to the rate hikes. We're already at peak levels for the central bank. And you've seen uh, piling into equity assets again over the course of this week. That changed to an extent yesterday. Now we saw on uh, the Fed policy rate uh, expectations, we had a 40% chance of a rate hike now in December. That ratcheted up from 28%, seen before that inflation report crossed. So what we've got a market just a little bit more nervous in session yesterday, half of a percent down roughly on the Dow, a little bit more coming off the S&P and the Nasdaq. In terms of the course of trade now for the week, we're still positive on the Dow to the tune of almost seven-tenths of a percent, firm about 1% on the S&P and 1% plus on the Nasdaq. So thanks to the front-loading of those gains this week, we are still seeing green on the index. The question is what happens today and whether that green still remains attached to the major boards. But I think if you look at some of the sectors too, you can see it came out of materials yesterday, that growth story materials down 1.5%. And over the course of this trading week, the most negative sector has been consumer staples. So just an element of concern around some of the, the prices, pricing pressure stories that we're seeing 
but also uh, the elevated credit cost too. I want to take you to Treasuries. It's going to be an important one, I think, to, to just track how we trade on this. We already saw some movement in session yesterday. The two-year, that moved up 0.6 of percent uh, points, or 0.06 rather, I should say, uh, to 5.07 in trade. We've drifted off that level by three basis points, but still we are back above that 5% mark. On that U.S. 10-year yield, 4.66. I think uh, it's going to be important in the sense that we've got a lot coming up over the next week. Jay Powell, he's due out on the 19th of October. That is before the next central bank meeting. That'll be another big stop for bond markets. And I think the earnings, too, are going to be very integral to the market sentiment over coming weeks. And don't forget, later on today, we have big bank numbers coming out from some of the major U.S. players. I want to take it to the dollar. That safety element coming back into markets, it's been supportive of the dollar. High yields, uh, more defense stands support of the greenback but morning session sterling euro both trying to claw back some of those losses and you can see 122.03 on the sterling dollar euro dollar we were above the 106 mark at one point you can see 105 and a half but that is a bounce morning session of two tens plus dollar yen rate still perched very close to what is seen as an intervention handle at 150 and you can see a dollar declining slightly but that is still fairly elevated at 149.62 dollar yuan slightly higher at this stage to wti brent and gold uh, i actually want to start with gold it's been an interesting journey hasn't it we've seen gold prices actually again edge up two week high where we're perched around the precious metals so the concerns we've seen around the Middle East and the rising geopolitical concerns really putting gold back into focus. It's been a bumpy ride for Brent and WTI this week. We've been up, we've been down, we're going back up again, as you can see. The latest here, we saw effectively the US tightening those sanctions, uh, the sanctions regime it has against Russian crude exports. So they're again, further supply concerns, but from a slightly different angle as we look to round out the week from the concerns around the Middle East and any perceived role there may be from Iran in the attacks by Hamas over the weekend and whether there would be any link to supply coming out of Iran. So there have been a lot of moving pieces for the oil markets of this week. And you can see the level 83.70 on WTI and just off the 87 handle on Brent. Asia markets morning session. We are in the red. It's a contrast to yesterday. A very strong day playing out for some of these markets, particularly Hong Kong yesterday, but really giving back a lot of those gains in the Friday trade so far, down 2%. More modest ranges on the other major boards, but still in retreat across the board from Japanese stocks to China and Australia. And in fact, on the, the Chinese numbers, we did also see, again, further evidence of some deflationary pressure coming through on the factory gate prices out of China. So that is somewhat of a headwind to the narrative there today. U.S. futures. Let's just take a quick look. This is what we are shaping up for. We've got green moving on to the charts early on. So it does suggest a modest tick up. Well, let's get deeper into the weeds on that CPI number. U.S. consumer prices rose more than expected last month, with the headline figure up 0.4% on the month and 3.7% on the year. Xing out those volatile food and energy components, the prices in those elements, core CPI increased 0.3% on month and 4.1% on a 12-month basis. That was its smallest gain in two years. World Bank President A.J. Banga has discussed debt and reform on a CNBC-moderated panel at the group's annual meeting in Marrakesh. He said it's impossible to know where borrowing costs will go next. All you have to do is go back in time a year or two and you will find everybody thought the era of interest rates being low or near zero was going to stay forever. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, everyone's view has changed and the era of higher interest rates will stay forever. They will also be wrong. <clears throat> Because anybody who knows how to predict interest rates should be in a different business. Normally, it's called soothsaying or, you know, future telling. 
SOCGEN chairman and former member of the ECB executive board, Lorenzo Benismaghi, has told Sylvia that it was no surprise to see an economic slowdown, but it's still too soon to know whether the Fed will manage to deliver a soft landing. We are trying to uh, reduce inflation. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult, uh, you know, looking back to history, to, to see inflation coming down without a slowdown in the economy and sometimes even a recession. So I think it had to be expected. Uh, now, of course, some people are still hoping on a soft landing. Um, I think this is, is really difficult to forecast because inflation pressures are still there. Uh, we see oil prices coming up, gas prices. So when will inflation go to 2%? I think that's a big unknown. And therefore, the forecast of interest rates is very difficult. So we have uh, that aspect, you know, slowdown of the economy. The other is um, growing fiscal deficits uh, and debt going up everywhere, including in the U.S., with problems of liquidity in the market. Um, so these are a combination of factors which uh, need to, you know, for us it's more important to be very, very uh, careful in assessing risk mm -hmm. and making the right decisions, I think. Um, the banking system is well capitalized, so... I a think, lot uh, there to digest. Let's focus on the soft landing for a moment. Um, you're saying that it's perhaps a bit too early to figure out what, whether that's likely. But with the data that we have at this stage, do you think that the U.S. economy is on track to achieve a soft landing? I, I, I really don't know. It's very difficult. I think that, um, you know, looking at full employment, how can inflation come down with full employment? I know that's, uh, it's, maybe it's a test of, uh, you know, economics uh, models. But uh, in order to reduce inflation, typically we have to, to reduce uh, uh, employment, to reduce wage pressures. So it, it could be a, a coincidence, but I, I think we, we should look forward. We should not be surprised if we have a slowdown also in the U.S. economy in 2024. Let's bring another voice. Jeff Taylor is founder and managing director at Digital Risk. Jeff, I want to get into the reaction to the CPI numbers yesterday. We had a slightly firmer headline number here, but it felt as though some just reset the narrative again that had very dovish messages about the growing risk to the economy from Fed speakers, but then ran a long way with this data yesterday, still showing that there are inflationary pressures. What did you make of the market reaction on the data that we saw? Thank you very much for having me this morning. I mean, look, the, the, the inflationary numbers, the good news is that they have come down from 8.8 in mid-22 to 3.9. That we have come a long ways. Uh, the big issue, I think, for the housing market, which is a big outlier, is that the rent cost, the house household of sheltering, is still so high. So for that to be able to come down and become more uh, somewhat affordable, that's going to be a measure that we're going to have to see shrink. And right now, there's no, there's no signs that the actual uh, shelter cost is going to shrink anytime soon. I gather it takes a long time to turn that around. It's not just simply tweaking of rates. It can be a, a long run change for a central bank trying to tame the shelter element. So how does the Fed need to think about getting ahead of the, the rising shelter costs? So I think look, they've, done, they've done a really good job. I know the Fed benchmark obviously is two percent that we're shooting for, and we're about to, we're about to double that right now. But again, we don't have to get the two percent inflation. Um, 
before we see actually mortgage rates start to fall. What we basically need to see is the mortgage rates, the inflation number somewhere around 3%, then you actually will start to see potentially mortgage mortgage rates start to, to com compress a little bit. And that should bring a little relief to people as they're for the total cost of the shelter, whether it be a mortgage or whether it be rents. Jeff, to me, it's very fractured in terms of how the central bank hikes so far are hitting various different parts of the economy because those who fixed, those who managed their mortgage costs still have not been caught up with some of the higher interest costs at this stage. So what does it mean as we talk about a higher for longer scenario? When do you think that starts to catch up and this lag effect starts to fade in terms of the housing market? So it's a good point. So there's two points I, I would call out. So the average U.S. 30-year mortgage right now still is around three and a half. I'm sorry, around four percent as far as what was fixed in over the last few years. So we have a lot of people who have a lot of duration on the existing mortgage they have right now. And even though we're looking at mortgage rates right now about 7.6% currently today, we're still going to have about 3.5 million houses purchased and financed this year with that. So while it costs more, there is uh, consumers still are able to afford it. It's just a matter of how much they're willing to put down and uh, saving for the house that they want to get. Jeff, I was just looking at some of the, the forecasts you pushed our way in terms of where house prices are meant to go this year. It's still up. How unusual is that at this point in the cycle after an aggressive run of interest rate hikes? It's a great question. This comes down to supply, supply, and supply. So, you know, there's about 6 million houses we didn't build in the last decade that has finally caught up. So while, you know, prices are still going up, I mean, there's just not enough supply. So anytime the houses come to the market, there's still an aggressive uh, bidding process. In, in many markets, people are still uh, buying at ask. And then from a home builder's perspective, they, they truly can't build them fast enough. You look at companies like Lennar and DR Horton, here in the U.S., as, far, as quickly as they can build up these houses, uh, people are buying them. So kind of all in, I think the, the all this comes back to while rates are higher over the last 20 years right now, and that's 7.6%, supply is so tight and the housing market is still on very uh, solid grounds. As we piece together where the Fed goes to next from here, there is a view on the market after yesterday and the data that, look, we've still got conditions that are too hot. You put this together with the employment numbers, the growth numbers, and now the CPI data. We've got a Fed that may still be hiking this year. Do you think that's possible? And do you think that is something that's going to have an impact on the market at this point if we do see another rate hike over the course of this year? Great question. If you asked me October 6th, uh, I, I basically thought that it was possible you might have another rate hike. I think when you look at what's going on in Israel right now, some of the geopolitical issues, I just don't. I mean, I think that's already been kind of looked at at 25 basis points down from the height uh, of the mortgage market perspective over Carousel last week. I just don't. I think there's it's too fragile right now globally for us to see another, another rate hike. There is a point of being of being hawkish, but also we have to be somewhat realistic with everything that's going on in a global perspective. And I think those will be the factors that will, will uh, basically mute any further rate hikes the rest of the year. Yeah, but Jeff, are we talking about the, the central bank for the states or the central bank for the rest of the world? And this has been an old debate we've had, right? What policy is right for a domestic economy versus an international one? And if we look at the data domestically, I mean, that heat in the jobs market, still the 336,000 jobs added over the course of the month and then ratcheting up to on previous month's estimates, that is telling us there's still heat in that domestic economy, even if some of the international factors have become more uncertain thanks to what's happening now in Israel. Isn't the domestic picture still telling us that the central bank might have some room to act if it just purely thinks about the United States economy? You know, again, it, it may. Uh, but again, my perspective kind of right now is that I think that if, again, 
the data data does point that what's happening here in the U.S. But I think about if they look globally and how we're we're basically one giant interconnected economy, it, I believe that they probably will not hike for the rest of the year because of that. But you know, time will tell. Like I said, if you ask me, ask me October sixth, I would have a different perspective. But right now, I think that we'll probably see them stay where we are till the end of the year. So, Jeff, let me ask you a slightly tricky question. We've got Jay Powell out speaking to the market, to investors, uh, to consumers, to business people, October 19th. He'll be sounding some sort of message, the last one before the next Fed meeting. What does he do? Because the other Fed speakers have been discussing the growing risks, in particular what we've seen on the, the long end of bond rates. What tone do you think Jay Powell sticks to at this point? Cautious. Right, I think I think he's going to be I think he's going to be I think he's going to be cautious. I think he's going to leave the door open for a rate hike. Definitely, I think he's going to point to the data points that you just spoke about a moment ago. But I think he's probably going to also say you realize that he's going to be taking into account what's going on kind of glo- uh, globally and, and watching that very uh, very cautiously uh, before actually moving just just before what he thinks is best for the U.S. by taking in all the macro uh, data points coming in before we make any moves. So again, he's not going to rule anything out. Um, he's going to definitely keep. He's going to keep optionality of it. But again, at the end of the day, I think that you'll. It'd be very hard pressed for uh, me to see him raise the rates before the end of the year. Jeff, just finally, can we talk a little bit about the U.S. consumer? We've spoken about it from the mortgage perspective, but a notable over the course of this trading week, uh, the consumer staples area of the market, one of the worst performing parts uh, in terms of performance. We've seen, of course, that uh, there's been various different impacts as rates have gone up. We've seen a subtle change in some demographics. Got banking numbers out later on, the beginning of earnings season for the banks in terms of what those delinquencies are looking like. Do you think there is an element of fatigue now coming into U.S. consumption patterns? Well, I do. And I think also there's a a data point that I look at quite a bit. If you look at the the COVID period, there was close to three, there was up to height, I think, close to two and a half trillion dollars extra in U.S. savings accounts. Uh, by the way, the measure of that is about 750 billion about six months ago, and that 750 billion is expected to potentially run out by the end of this year or have been spent. The reason why I point that out is, you know, it, the, the the U.S. spending as far as delinquencies, I do expect that when we go into 24. I mean, we're at historic lows, right? We're at like sub one percent on mortgage delinquencies and credit cards are not that stressed. So I think as you enter 2024 is where you're going to see uh, some delinquencies start to pick up to at some nor- normal patterns. Another data point, if I tie it back to the mortgage industry, from a foreclosure perspective, we're still at 38% on a monthly basis. If I look at this time back in 2019 to where we are uh, again right now. So, you know, people have had plenty, have had a, a very robust savings account and have been that money. But if this is true, and those excess savings do kind of run out by the end of the year, I think you'll look back, you'll start to move back to a, a more normal delinquency uh, table um, by the end of this year. And then so going to 24, it'll be a little bit of a different outlook than we've had for the last four years. Jeff, very much appreciate your time. Thank you staying up for, uh, late for us tonight. Very much appreciate it. Jeff Taylor with us, founder and managing director, Digital Risk. Elsewhere, Chinese producer prices fell for a 12th straight month in September, with a bigger-than-expected annual decline of 2.5%. Consumer prices missed expectations, unchanged from a year prior. We also had trade data, with imports and exports both declining. Let's get out to Sam for more. Sam, we were hoping that there would be some improvement in the data, but this series suggests that we've still got some downbeat pattern playing out for the Chinese economy. 
Very good morning to you, Karen. That's right. It wasn't a particularly strong set of numbers that we got today, of course, playing catch-ups after that extended holiday in terms of all the data we got today with the inflation and the trade. So it was quite busy. Um, I'll start with the inflation data because uh, overall it does seem that we are seeing some encouraging signs. However, what this is offering is it's telling us that the recovery still remains fragile and that it is going to be slow and bumpy as some of that confidence takes time to recover fully and really start to bounce back in a sort of meaningful way. So what we got in terms of the month-on-month numbers was quite encouraging, a pickup both on the consumer prices and the producer prices. Uh, But when you look under the hood, there were some still worrying trends because it does look like from this data that it is a little bit too early to tell whether the deflationary risk is transitory for now, uh, particularly because we got a flat reading on the CPI uh, when it came to the year on year numbers. Uh, we have certainly seen a pickup in the demand uh, in October when you look at the golden week spending. So it's going to be very interesting to see um, if we continue to actually see a bit of a pickup. The suggestion from economists that we've been talking to is that we probably will start to see uh, an improvement. And then um, when you look at the food prices, it did look largely like a story um, of uh, a bit of a pork drag because, of course, that makes up for a big chunk of that CPI basket. Um, as I said, the producer prices, uh, the deflationary pressures persisting, um, but certainly starting to ease, largely thanks to higher oil prices. Um, It does look like the uh, economists are telling us that we do need to see some more sort of reflationary policies being introduced. And then the trade numbers certainly narrowing in terms of the contraction we saw in both exports and imports. So overall, uh, an improvement, but certainly the next thing to watch, uh, as far as economists are saying, are those economic meetings that we'll be having in the next uh, couple of months over in China in terms of how they intend to thrash out uh, the direction for the next year in terms of their stimulus. Back to you. Sam, thank you very much for bringing us the detail around those Chinese numbers. Well, coming up on the show, we're going to bring you the latest developments in Israel as U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken visits the Middle East. Plus, former Alameda Research CEO Caroline Ellison wraps up three days of testimony in the trial of Sam Bankman fried We'll have the latest from New York and our coverage from the IMF World Bank meetings in Marrakesh continues. We'll bring you a first on CNBC a conversation with the OECD Secretary General Matthias Corman at 9.05 CET. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Israel's military has warned that the entire population of northern Gaza, an estimated 1.1 million people, should relocate to the south of the territory immediately, ahead of what are described as significant military operations. The UN had earlier said that it would be impossible for such a movement to take place without devastating humanitarian consequences. Israel's military has laid siege to Gaza since last weekend's attack by Hamas, launching repeated airstrikes as well as cutting off food, electricity and fuel, which some UN humanitarian experts have branded war crimes through collective punishment. 
U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has arrived in Jordan, where he is set to meet with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas and Jordan's King Abdullah II. It comes after Blinken expressed American support for Israel in talks with Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel in Tel Aviv. The U.S. top diplomat rather sat down with NBC News' Lester Holt and said he'd addressed the humanitarian crisis with the Israeli Prime Minister. Civilians should not be used in any way as the targets of military operations. Uh, they are not the target of Israel's operations. Uh, we did discuss ways to address the humanitarian needs of people living in, uh, in Gaza to protect them from harm while Israel conducts its legitimate security operations to defend itself from terrorism and to try to ensure that this never happens again. Let's get out to Dan for more. Dan, we've seen through other situations a huge displacement of people when we're talking about more than a million people, but not during a hot conflict at this stage. So just give us a sense of what's playing out on the ground now as we talk about the offensive from the Israelis. Karen, good morning to you. Well, the significance of this cannot be understated. This is 1.1 million people who have been told to move from the north to the south as Israel prepares for what could be a ground operation in Gaza in the coming hours and days. Of course, that evacuation, Israeli military says, is for everyone's safety. But of course, it has raised concerns about exactly how those people are going to move so quickly and exactly where they are going to go. Uh, at the same time, we also know that there are basically three areas of Israeli military priority now, and that is, number one, securing Israel's borders. Uh, number two, ensuring that Hezbollah does not join Hamas in this fight, which would ultimately result in what could be a wider regional conflict. And then the third priority is to also ensure uh, that what unfolds here does not also include Iran. And earlier today, I had a conversation with Yaakov Amadror, who was an IDF, a uh, former IDF major general, who also served as the former head of Israeli national security and an advisor to the prime minister. I asked him whether or not he thought Iran was directly involved in the operation and execution of these attacks. And here's how he responded. Listen in. Training, weapons, money, a lot of money, 80% or 90% of the budget of Hamas is, by, is financed by the Iranians. So it's money, it's munition, it's training, it's support, everything is coming from uh, Iran. But unlike Hezbollah, the decision-making is done by the leadership of Hamas without the Iranians. So I don't know if the Iranians were directly involved in the operation, but the organization is, is very much helped by the Iranians in the past and in the, in the present. But we will not say that Iran was involved before we will have a real evidence. This is something that the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has been focusing on during his visit to Israel. He is now elsewhere in the region attempting to secure the release of the hundreds of hostages that are being held captive uh, by Hamas forces, perhaps as a bargaining chip as this conflict continues to unfold. Karen, we are also expecting the U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, as well as European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, to be inbound to Israel this weekend 
first of all, for a show of support for Israel's uh, allies there. But uh, secondly, when it comes to Lloyd Austin's visit, uh, perhaps to maneuver more U.S. aid, more U.S. resources uh, into Israel as it continues to take on this fight. As this all unfolds, there is also this growing crisis in Gaza. And I mentioned the movement of these people from the north uh, to the south. 340,000 people have already been displaced as supplies continue to run out. And Israel says this complete siege will not be lifted until Hamas releases the believed 100 to 150 people that have been taken hostage. So uh, this is most certainly not over yet. It's back over to you. Dan, thank you very much for running us through the latest there. And for more on the developments in the Israel-Hamas war, you can head online to cnbc.com. Elsewhere, EU regulators have opened a probe into social media platform X over the spread of illegal content and misinformation related to the conflict between Israel and Hamas. EU Commissioner for the Internal Market, Thierry Breton, said the bloc was trying to determine whether the platform formerly known as Twitter was complying with the Digital Services Act. And you may recall there was a shot over the bow on the platform itself by Breton. And now we're talking about a stepped-up investigation here. Now, Chairman of the Portland Trust, Sir Ronald Cohen, has been invested in uh, the West Bank for over two decades. Our colleague Tanya caught up with the philanthropist and venture capitalist and began by asking him what difference he believed U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to the region will make. I believe that international efforts are going to be crucial, not just at resolving this war, but at resolving this conflict. There are huge numbers of positive relationships between Palestinians and Israelis, economic relationships in particular. A majority of the population on both sides would like to see the end this conflict. Sir Ronald, you've been working in the region for the past 20 years with the Portland Trust that you co-founded in 2003 to invest in the West Bank to help with economic development for the Palestinians. What kind of initiatives have you seen have the most progress? There's no doubt that the Palestinian economy is capable of growing at the rate of 10% a year or more for 10 years or more. We've seen it in the period when uh, Salam Fayyad was prime minister, there was growth of 11%. And there is a long list of investment opportunities and economic initiatives that would enable the Palestinian economy to grow and improve the standard of living of its population and give them a future that they can look forward to with optimism. We have focused on projects that boost employment, that improve uh, the ability of uh, the Palestinian economy to take advantage of uh, the presence of a technological power uh, next door. And what I can say, Tanya, is over 20 years through our office in Ramallah in Tel Aviv, and in London. I have seen evidence over and over again that we are capable of having a thriving neighbor next to Israel. Obviously, this isn't the time to talk about it after this horrific massacre. But when we come to it, Secretary Blinken's um, efforts and those of the Arab countries that want to help the Palestinians 
are going to have to focus on reconstruction and on the building of a stable, growing economy that gives Palestinians the future they deserve. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.